we find ourselves at a time in history when people are extremely divided and unity, it seems, is in short supply. I think of places like Myanmar. It's a, a country in the, the southeast part of Asia with a population of over 50 million people. And while uh, it hasn't gotten a lot of attention in the news, at least not here in the US, um, Myanmar is a country that is engulfed in the world's largest ongoing civil war. For over 70 years, that's seven decades, the country has been deeply divided. They, they've experienced civil unrest, protests, insurgencies, and last year, a violent and, and, and an ongoing way, a deadly military coup. Here in the States, um, by God's grace and by his mercy, we're, we're certainly not experiencing the kind of division or violence that is happening in Myanmar, but I think it's pretty clear uh, to everybody that we are experiencing division around what seems like an innumerable amount of issues. The economy, immigration, race, gun control, sex and gender, education, the list just goes on and on and on. In thinking about this, I wondered, what about the church? Is the church immune from the kind of division that we see rampant all over the place in the world around us? I think of a story that Dwight Pentecost tells of a church split many, many years ago that was so serious and so ugly that, that each side sued and filed a lawsuit against the others to dispossess them from the church. The case eventually made its way in and back out of civil court into a, a church court, and eventually the church court ruled in favor of one of the parties granting them rights to the church. But perhaps the most tragic part of this church split is that during the proceedings, the church court found out that the start of the division came at a church dinner when an elder received a smaller slice of ham than the child seated next to him. I know, it sounds, it sounds absurd, it sounds like a ridiculous example, but the truth is, brothers and sisters, division for any church, even ours, is not an impossibility. So we're gathered here this morning on this field at our annual outdoor service, and we must ask, how can we be a church that experiences true and lasting unity? Does it just take the calling of a meeting and a steak hoagie and a few games of cornhole? Not that there's anything wrong with that. But how can we experience true biblical unity? And so with that question, if you've not already turned, please meet me in your Bibles uh, in Ephesians chapter 4. Uh, as was read earlier, we'll be looking this morning at verses 1 to 16. And after spending the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians, giving what is just a, a master class in gospel theology, Paul begins to connect the dots over to the gospel life. And in this, this text, the emphasis is on a corporate life and a corporate life of unity, the unity of Christ's church. And so I wanna make four specific observations from the 16 verses that we have here before us in Ephesians 4. First, we have what we might call the, the walk of unity. The walk of unity. Check it out in verses 1 to 3. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you walk in a manner worthy of the calling 
to which you've been called with all humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And the first thing we ought to notice in this, this opening section is, is the tone that Paul gives here, right? This is no small matter. He's urging, urging the Ephesians to walk in a manner worthy of their calling. Now, he's not saying, do the things I'm about to tell you to do and you'll earn God's favor. That's not the gospel. The gospel is not, I obey, therefore I'm accepted by God. The gospel of Jesus is that in Christ, through faith, we're accepted by God and therefore we obey. So he's, he's commending a responsive walk here, one that's consistent with the, the glorious and effectual call of God into fellowship with Jesus. And, and then he continues to get specific and lays out exactly what this walk toward unity looks like by listing a handful of virtues or a handful of dispositions. Humility, gentleness, patience, and forbearance. Now, taken together, I think the first thing that we should see is the Lord Jesus himself, right? Jesus, the one who humbly condescended from heaven to earth to save a, a sinful people. Jesus is the one who, who referred to himself as gentle and lowly, the one who invited people to come to him for the forgiveness of sins and saving faith. Jesus as the one who is incredibly patient and remains incredibly patient with his wayward disciples. Then you've got this, this urgent eagerness to maintain the unity of the Spirit. The word eager here, it's really interesting. It means to show keen interest or intense desire to maintain a unity that is divinely given to the church to be maintained. You pair this eagerness with the urgency of Paul's language earlier, it really is worth thinking about for a minute. I mean, I think about all the things that I regularly desire for my life. You probably do as well. Health, friendships, financial stability, economic stability, good luck with that one. The success of our children, the success of our grandchildren. But I wonder if in equal or even greater measure, how often we're actively thinking and intentionally working to maintain unity as, as this people, this local church. It's important to point out here that, that while we can certainly read some of this text and apply it to the church universal, there's, there's certainly application there, but, but primarily Paul's writing to local churches. He's writing to, to assemblies, to families, just like us. And so, so imagine for a moment, thinking about these dispositions of unity, imagine for a moment that you're a registered Republican. I know there aren't many of you here this morning, but just imagine. And imagine this morning that the person you're sitting next to is a registered Democrat. Imagine for a moment you're a public school teacher. Your daddy was a public school teacher. Your mama was a public school teacher. Your granddaddy was a public school teacher. Decades invested into training children. And this morning, you're sitting next to a homeschool mom who's been homeschooling her kids for 15 years. Imagine for a moment, this one's, I'm, it's gonna seem crazy, but imagine for a moment that your growth group leader or someone in your group says something that you don't agree with, or somebody says something in a tone that you feel like maybe is a passive aggressive swipe at you in your group. Imagine that your pastor 
takes longer than 24 seconds, I mean hours, hours, to return your email. What is, what's your disposition toward that person? What's the, what's the reflex? We all have reflexes. What's your reflex in those situations? Is it suspicion, malice, impatience, or is it humility, gentleness, etc.? Now, with all this talk of unity, we, we might be tempted to think that Paul here is, is promoting or advocating some kind of limp, frameless unity, right? Everyone just kind of smiling and nodding along, and isn't that lovely, and never thinking, never asking a question, but that it could not be further from the truth, and we know that based on the second section of this text, which lays out for us the roots of unity, the roots or or the objective foundation of Christian unity. Christian unity is not a unity that, that draws no convictional lines. Look again at verses 4 to 6. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who's over all, through all, and in all. Now whether Paul here is citing an early Christian creed, certainly possible, maybe even a hymn. Either way, under the inspiration of the Spirit, the message is clear. There is a unity and a, a oneness about authentic Christianity that binds the church together. You know, a lot of us here this morning, probably many of us, if not most of us, would say we believe in God or follow Jesus, but, but we have to take care to note that it's not on our terms. Which God are we talking about? What Jesus are we talking about? What faith are we talking about? This is where Paul gives us these objective realities, and he lists seven of these ones. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all. And easily, easily, a sermon could be spent on each one of these seven ones. But for the sake of time, why don't we just break it down into two pretty simple categories. First these realities showcase the nature and the essence of God Himself. Notice all three persons of the Holy Trinity are mentioned, Spirit, Lord referring to Jesus, and Father. And the Trinity, as we know, is one of the indispensable doctrines and truths of the Christian faith. I love the way that the Athanasian Creed says, we worship one God in Trinity, and trinity and unity, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the substance, for there's one person of the Father, another of the Son, and another of the Holy Spirit. A second category of these ones might be described as the, the work of this triune God, what he, what he does. So one body, the church, one hope that's rooted in the power of God's saving and effectual call, one faith both in its object and in its teachings, and one baptism by the Spirit into Christ and into His church. Think about what this would have meant to an original audience made up of these two big ethnic, ethnic groups and people groups, Jews and Gentiles. Two ethnicities, two people groups that had plenty of contention and not a lot of reason to come together around certain things. And then think about what that means, of course, for us. I mean, if you've looked around this morning, you would see that, that there are hundreds and hundreds of people here on this field 
of different ages, of different family backgrounds, different ethnicities, certainly different preferences, and yet here we all are, the gathered people of God's redeemed, committed to these essential realities. George Whitfield and John Wesley were two of the most prominent Christian ministers in the 18th century. And, and, and while they were certainly committed to the same mission, these were very different guys, very different dudes. They had different backgrounds. They had different skill sets, different approaches to ministry. They also had really deep theological disagreements, public disagreements, specifically around the doctrines of grace uh, and sanctification, those types of things. And yet throughout their lives, we also observe a lot of charity and even appreciation between these two Christian ministers. So much so, in fact, that it's, it's said that, that George Whitfield was once asked if he'd see John Wesley in heaven. And he responded, no, I'm afraid I won't. Because he'll be so close to the throne, I'll never get a look at him. In fact, it was at Whitfield's request that none other than his unlikely friend, John Wesley, preach his funeral service, and Wesley did. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all. Those are deep roots, brothers and sisters, and if that wasn't enough, the church has even more reason for encouragement in the pursuit of unity, and that's because of the gifts of unity. Grace gifts that are given to all of us by the ascended Christ. You might notice the, the transitional language of verse 7. But, so you've got all these ones, and then Paul says, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. I really like the way Eugene Peterson says it in his paraphrase. He said, this doesn't mean you should all look and speak and act the same. Out of the generosity of Christ, each of us is given his own gift. In other words, unity does not mean uniformity. Jesus has uniquely and diversely gifted every member of his church. He, he talks more about this later in the text when he, he mentions every joint and, and each part working together properly. But what's also interesting, I think, in this text is that unlike places in 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12, you might be familiar where Paul kind of launches into a list of spiritual gifts or spiritual things. He actually doesn't do that here. Instead, after he makes this statement, he gives immediate attention not to the specific gifts, but to the giver. It's curious, isn't it? Look at verse 8. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. And saying he ascended... What does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. There's a lot of questions that we could ask about this section of the text, but, but basically what Paul's doing here is referencing Psalm 68 to paint this amazing picture of Jesus as the victorious, ascended, and generous king. Right? This is the the core of the gospel story. The eternal Son of God condescends to the earth in the incarnation. He lives the life that we should have lived and yet eventually went all the way down unto death, paying the penalty for our sin. And then he rose victorious, conquering Satan, sin, and death. And upon this victory and upon his ascension, this is a victorious Christ 
that gives gifts to his people. That should give us, friends, a remarkable confidence that this local church family has everything it needs for health and unity because we serve a victorious king, he's ascended, and we serve a generous king. This is also a great word of caution against hoarding what Christ has given, withholding what Christ has given from specifically these brothers and sisters around us. Verses 11 and 12 march along by mentioning, again, curiously, not so much a quality list, but, but people, specific people that the ascended Christ gives to the church. Verse 11, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. First, the apostles. That is, those, those very few select individuals who were personally appointed by Jesus to establish the bedrock and foundation of the New Testament church. Similarly, the, the prophets, those uniquely empowered by God to speak on his behalf recorded in the scriptures. These are the, the two foundational offices that Paul speaks about in chapter two of this very same letter when he says, so then you are members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And while it's certainly true and, and can be said to a degree that every Christian is sent by Jesus on mission, that every Christian is given to be a word worker, in this context we see these offices as a past office, not a present office. Moving into today, we have the evangelists. That is, those in the church who are just, they're just uniquely given and gifted to share the gospel. You've met them, I've met them. They're a great gift to our church family and the community at large. And then lastly, and perhaps most, most relevant or, or nearest to us today, we have the pastor-teacher. There's some debate on whether these are two offices or one office. I tend to take them as one, the single office of pastor-teacher. But this is basically what we would know as our pastors and elders at Old North. And I was thinking about this this week. I had a conversation with a young couple this week that reminded me of this. It's worth pausing to acknowledge what might be an elephant in the room or on the field. Um, we're, we're talking right now about church leaders as a gift to the church. And it's without a doubt that in a group this size, a claim like that is hard to swallow because we, we live in a day where abuses in the church are far, far, far too common. Grabs for power, emotional manipulation, and much, much worse. And, and I, just, I just want to say to those who have experienced that type of gross, habitual, unrepentant, sinful treatment, I am so sorry. I am so sorry because that is not Jesus' design. Jesus' design for the pastor-teacher is to emulate all of those beautiful virtues that we read in the first few verses of this passage. It's not to say that pastors, even your pastors, won't make mistakes. We will. But I want you to know this morning, with sincerity, we do love you and aspire to be the gifts to you that, that Jesus intended. And in order to do that, we also need to be given to the right work, the work of verse 12. Look again. Given to equip the saints for the work of ministry, 
for building up the body of Christ. So the, the job of the pastor teacher is not to be the savior of his people. There's one savior, one mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. The job is not to do everything that needs done in and around the church. The job is to equip the saints. And as a consequence, then every member, all of you will participate in the work of building up the body. But it's helpful to ask at this point, to what end? Like, what's the goal? Is it just to kind of, you know, hold hands and sing kumbaya and just, you know, be nice to each other, but kind of in a circular fashion? You know, we're not really working toward anything. And this is where the text leads us, because we're not just running on a rat wheel, is the outcome of unity, the purpose, the goal of unity, which is growth and maturity in the Lord Jesus. So the body's being built up by every member. And then verse 13, the text finishes out until, so here we go, until we all attain the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, craftiness, and deceitful schemes. Rather... Speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and, and held together by every joint with which it's equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is it, saints. This is it. This is what we're after. And, and Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, is kind to give us a picture of what we're after, how we get there, and where we're going. What are we after? Well, we're after this unity of the faith, verse 13. I think it's really interesting that back in verse 3, Paul talks about an eagerness to maintain a unity of the Spirit. That's the, the binding divine unity that's given to the church. But, but now in verse 13, he holds out this idea of attaining. Attaining the unity of the faith. This is what John Stott refers to as, as what might call the visible unity of the church. The visible unity. Friends, the world is watching. I wonder what we're showing them about real unity. And again, we're not just talking about like a boundless ecumenicism here. We're pursuing a visible unity of the faith, the faith. We might think about it the way that Jude describes it in his epistle, the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And if we fail to attain to that kind of unity, Paul says we're going to be like children. We're going to be tossed to and fro, carried about by every wind of doctrine. There's schemes at play against the church. So we're to pursue the unity of faith in Christian maturity, grounding us in sound doctrine. Doctrine matters, life matters. And then in verse 15, he tells us how we get there. Speaking the truth in love. This is key because as we, as we engage in this kind of truth speech, this word talk, this gospel talk, we grow. We grow together. And, and this exhortation specifically to speak the truth in love also really unlocks verse 12, this idea of, of the work of the ministry. I mean, the word means service, and there's certainly a general sense of, of serving one another within the body of Christ. 
But in verse 15, we get this, we get this particular work of ministry, truth speaking, in love, that really, really brings us home and really causes the growth. I love how uh, Pastor Lionel Windsor says it. He said in Ephesians 4, it's God's word all the way down. From Christ, through the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, through the saints, to the body. wonder if you've thought about yourself, if you're a Christian this morning, as being a gifted word speaker, a truth teller. This doesn't mean necessarily that you'll be teaching Sunday school next week, but, but it does mean that every Christian is called and equipped by the risen Christ, mind you, to speak the truth in love to the brothers and sisters around you. And in doing so, that will lead us to our destination. Where is all this leading? Where is all this going? The end of verse 15, up. <laughs> up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. What a phrase that is. Christ and growth into him. And in coming to the end of this amazing passage, we, we might summarize it this way, that the unity of Christ's church leads to the growth and maturity of Christ's church. The essential and the functional unity of the church will produce in us as a people growth and maturity in the Lord Jesus Christ. All of you know, we've got a lot of them running around here today, that children are a great blessing from the Lord. They're a great gift from Him. We also know, um, if we're honest, <laughs> that they're not always a picture of maturity. I was getting ready for work this week. Uh, per the norm, our youngest came into to our room to get ready with me, and he kind of makes this like, interesting and random observation about our sink. He's like, Dad, I really like this sink. Why did they make it this way? And I'm like, I don't know, we're late at this point, and I'm like, you know, probably a little impatient. I'm like, I don't know, buddy. You know, it's just kind of the, the way they made it. And then he just kind of, with this very sober tone, says, I wish this was my room. I'm like, oh, well, you know, but maybe when you, when you get older, you, could, you can buy a house, and you can, you can have a room with a sink just like this. There's nothing special about the sink, by the way. It's not like gold-plated or anything. It's just a sink. He goes, well, oh, well, how do you get a house? And I say, well, you, you know, you need money, and... I didn't explain mortgages and debts and interest rates at that point. I'm like, oh, you need money. You need money to buy a house. He goes, oh, that's no problem. I'm already rich. I said, oh, you are. I said, well, well, how much money do you have? He just rolls his eyes and says, I have no idea. As much joy and, and levity as those kind of stories have them, you have them as well. We know that that's not the end goal for our children, right? We want them to be grounded in truth and reality. And as easy as it is to chuckle about the immaturity of a seven-year-old, I wonder what our maturity level looks like as a local church. We want to grow. We want to be mature. We want to be grounded. We want to be growing up into him who is the head. We want to be functioning properly and, and growing. And the unity of Christ's church is what leads to the growth of Christ's church. A couple of questions to, to think about this afternoon as we eat and enjoy together. Maybe even chat about. Uh, to those who, who haven't yet put your faith in Jesus, I, I just wonder if you might consider Jesus today. Because putting your faith in Jesus 
is a unifying experience. Union with Christ is one of the great and, and most encouraging teachings in the scripture that, that when a person puts their faith in Jesus, they're, they're united to him by faith and, and, and they experience all of the, the amazing blessings that we see in Ephesians chapter 1. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Being adopted as sons through Jesus Christ to the praise of his glorious grace. Redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, peace with God. The invitation stands today. And to the believer, to, to our church family, I wonder if we, we might consider, what am I doing urgently, intentionally, to maintain the unity of the Spirit, to attain the unity of faith among this church family, specifically? Am I actively speaking the truth and love to my brothers and sisters here? Or, if I'm being honest, it's just been a season where I've kind of come, I've consumed, and I've, and I've walked out. I mean, it's one, one thing to say, Listen, it's one thing to say, I'm really growing in the Lord. And that's, like, fantastic. Like, keep going by all means. But, but the, the message of Ephesians 4 is a corporate message. And it's a specific message to walk in unity, built on the roots of unity, receiving the gifts of unity, and pursuing the outcome of unity. And the unity of Christ's church will indeed lead to the growth and the maturity of Christ Church. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for the truth of Ephesians 4. I pray that it would pierce our hearts, that it would challenge our minds. And I pray for us, I pray for our congregation today, that we would exude the type of unity that we read about in this passage. I pray that you would help us to grow in our patience with one another, in our forbearance with one another. Help us to be a, a humble people, a humble church. Help us to rely eagerly upon the gifts that the risen Christ has given us. And Father, help us to apply those gifts. Forgive us for hoarding them. Forgive us for neglecting them. I pray that you would stir in us a, a zeal for unity. And I pray that that unity would produce in us a growth, a growth up into Christ, our great and glorious head. May he receive honor and blessing and praise as we continue and finish our time together in Jesus' name. Amen.